thank you so much for that beautiful music. It is always a pleasure to have Nicole with us. Nicole is a member of All Souls down the street, so we are glad to have our sibling congregation with us. And Josh, I think this is your first time with us, is that right? And Josh, you're on staff, is that right, at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Annapolis, Maryland. So we are really delighted to welcome you here. And of course, Tom is drumming today, and Tom is part of this community. It is good to have you all with us, and it is good to have all of you here, and those of us who are joining us on Facebook this morning, we are glad to have you as well. Eric, in the back, could you close one door, the, the other door, the right door, so that I can see the clock, which everyone will appreciate? <laughs> Thank you very much. Good. Now we're, now, now we're okay, guys. <clears throat> I have been thinking about this platform for some time, this platform about money, which the stewardship team requested that I give. They wanted me to talk about what money means in our society writ large, in our society here, our community here. And last night as I was kind of finishing preparations, I realized I hadn't had the time that I expected to have to prepare for it yesterday evening because I was ironically at a um, pledge event asking people at West to give money to the community. Here I was thinking about sort of the risks that we take when we talk about money and I was in fact taking that risk. I, um, I often have people ask me if, um, I, if, if the fundraising part, the asking for money part is the worst part of my job. I think they imagine that it's uncomfortable to talk about money, you know, it's uncomfortable to ask people to give money. And um, I actually have a fundraising background, that's the work that I did before seminary, and, and that really taught me that, um, that asking for money, you know, uh, when you are able to give to something that you care about, it is a, a wonderful thing. And so it, it taught me not to be afraid, at least, of asking and talking about money, that, that um, that I came to this work with some comfort level, talking about this thing that in most of American society, we try to avoid talking about money, right? In fact, we often think of money as dirty, um, although there are sometimes those studies that show actually like the residue of whatever's literally on our paper money, it, it actually maybe is dirty physically, um, but, but I think more so we have this sort of mental image of, of money as, as dirty or um, something we aren't supposed to talk about, right? You know, avoid the topics of politics, religion, and money in polite company. Everyone, I think, in America, in this sort of um, uh, group decision not to talk about money, everyone wants to be seen as middle class, as something just kind of middle of the road. We all have basically enough. Of course, the reality is quite different than that. Um, Wikipedia tells us that in 2007, the top 20% wealthiest people um, possessed in America possessed 80% of all financial resources. So 20% had 80%. The richest 1% in 2007 owned 35% of the country's total wealth. And then the next 19% owned 51%, so in that, in that 80%. So the top 20% of Americans owned 85% of the country's wealth, and the bottom 80% of the population owned 15% of the country's wealth. D.C. actually has one of the largest gaps of income inequality in the city itself, 
um, in the country, there are only a few cities uh, nationally, Boston and New York among them, who have a wider gap. The DC Fiscal Policy Institute says, since 2007, the district has consistently been among the five large US cities where the income gap is the greatest. The average household income of the top 5% in DC was 52 times the income of the bottom 20% in 2014. That is quite the gap. So we all in America want to be middle class. We all say we are, and yet the reality is that that's not true at all, right? Otherwise, the word middle doesn't have any meaning <laughs> if we have the top 1% with 15% um, uh, of the wealth. Um, and I, I place myself in that we, in that group of folks that wants us to all just be middle class or middle something, you know. We, we actually put all these little labels on it like, oh, it's like lower middle class or upper, upper middle class. I'm really middle middle class. <laughs> I don't know what middle middle class even means. Um, because I think we want to pretend that America is that equal opportunity place, right? Where basically we are all the same with some very minor variations or outliers. A classless place that we imagine ourselves to be. The book, White Trash, The 400-Year Untold History of Class in America by Nancy Eisenberg, examines our desire to pretend that America is a classless society. And it puts that to the lie by pointing out all the ways that in particular in this book they're looking at a white lower class which has been with us since the beginning of America's founding. Um, she also incorporates an understanding of the way that race and class are intimately connected in American history. Although I ended up, I read the book and then ended up not using a whole lot of it because I found that analysis to be weak. Um, although I suppose the title should have clued me into the fact that it was going to focus mostly on the um, white experience in America. But still, Eisenberg writes, um, and I quote, a preoccupation with penalizing poor whites reveals an uneasy tension between what Americans are taught to think the country promises, the dream of upward mobility, and the less appealing truth that class barriers almost invariably make that dream unattainable. Later she writes, the problem is that popular American history is most commonly told, dramatized, without much reference to the existence of social classes. I don't know about you, but my upbringing um, sort of illustrates that point, the way I was taught to talk or not talk about money and class. It's similar to some of the childhood teachings I received around colorblindness, right? You know, that we just don't see color, everybody is the same, which of course is not actually possible. You would be therefore the one person in America that had managed to escape the um, uh, the framework of race and racism in our society. And I think similarly, um, when we look at money and class, um, so it's taken me some time as an adult to think back to my experiences as a child and think about sort of what my class experiences were, what my socioeconomic experiences were. Maybe you have done some of this work yourself or maybe you were raised with um, very clear understanding of where you stood in terms of socioeconomic um, uh, class and socioeconomic opportunity, which are not actually the same thing. I was raised in um, physically in a working class neighborhood. Um, the majority of my neighbors didn't go to college. We lived on a, um, a road that was a, a 60 mile per hour road that had gravel trucks go back and forth um, up it. So 
So we had an old house from the 1800s, very beautiful, but you couldn't be in the front at all because it was just coated with gravel dust, right? But, but then my family was an anomaly within that neighborhood, and part of that anomaly came from the fact that we were a family with multi-generational wealth. My father worked at home as a furniture maker. I will tell you that that is not a lucrative profession. Um, I think some years um, it was sort of um, maybe a negative on the family balance rolls, but he loved his work and, um, and was and is an artist in that, um, in that field. And my mother was a college professor um, at a women's co small women's college in upstate New York, which is actually um, the lowest paid college in New York State. Um, they did a study, and that was true. Uh, she was an associate professor. Um, although happily not an adjunct. As you know, if you are familiar with academia, adjuncts um, make uh, even less. Um, so, so there we were, this family with a PhD and an all but dissertation before he dropped out of the biology program to make furniture, um, in, um, in a working class neighborhood sending their child to only independent schools. I, I attended all private schools as a child on financial aid. And I had this, really interesting experience then as a child kind of moving among different worlds and being in different socioeconomic um, uh, groupings and having a different place within each one of them. In my middle school years, um, I was at a private school uh, where being on financial aid was the sort of whispered thing um, and not a good thing. There was a lot of shame associated with it. There was a um, a ballroom dance club on Friday afternoons, um, which was by invitation only. I don't even know how these things continue to exist, but there was an invitation only ballroom dance club on Friday afternoons at this girl's school. And um, uh, I was never invited. And finally, somebody said to my mother, um, well, we didn't invite Amanda um, because we, the girls usually wear a different dress every Friday afternoon, and we knew she wouldn't have enough dresses um, to fit in. So we didn't um, invite her into the, into the group. So here I had this experience of othering, but within a really rarefied environment, right? You know, my othering was sort of a, a middle-class othering by uh, upper-middle-class experience, very different than the experiences that some of my neighbors might have had themselves. That sort of movement between different classes and understanding what it meant for us all the while being aware of the multi-generational wealth that meant that my family, although the nuclear family didn't have much money when I was growing up, had cars that grandparents helped to pay for, and the expectation of some support when I went to college and being able to do that in a way that our nuclear family income wouldn't have allowed. All of those pieces gave me an interesting perspective on the way that we have and don't have money, the way that we move throughout different socioeconomic places in our lives and what it means for us as we do that. So we may in America like to pretend that we are all middle class, but as we know, the reality is far different. One in three children in the District of Columbia lives in poverty, and that statistic is a little higher than in the rest of the country, but not much. How then do we in America deal with the reality of money in our country? Not the pretend American opportunity version, but the reality of the way income is unequal, the way multi-generational wealth is unequal in our country. 
and the way that it is often no reflection on us and on our own lives. Although there is an aspect there, we can, of course, make choices that bring more or less money into our lives over the course of our lives. A lot of our socioeconomic status is tied to that multi-generational wealth and to the system in America which preserves it, right? There's a platform in a couple of weeks um, where I've been asked, it's an auction platform, and I've been asked to um, imagine the demise of capitalism and the rise of anarchy instead. So we'll have a chance to um, envision a world where none of that is true, <laughs> but that's not this platform. <laughs> Please think of me as I plan for that. Um, that's not this platform. This platform is about the reality that we inhabit, the reality of different socioeconomic statuses, different incomes across our country. I can't, of course, imagine that without thinking about how we deal with it nationally, how we are having that conversation as a country right now. Karen mentioned in her meditation the federal budget as it has been proposed, as it comes out. And of course, my Facebook feed has been just blowing up with different images comparing the cost of a weekend at Mar-a-Lago with the cost of Meals on Wheels for a year. I know from the perspective of someone who creates a budget that it can be, you know, easy to pick out those things and, um, and compare them as though, you know, it's apples to apples. But boy, the optics don't look that good, do they? The federal budget, as proposed, gives, as I'm sure you know, tax cuts to the wealthiest in America and cuts a huge number of programs from the National Endowment for the Arts, which really isn't about art, but in many ways is about bringing lifelines to um, children in poverty, um, to aid across the board to low-income people and children and to the sciences, um, including the National Institutes for Health here in D.C. And I know that that federal budget affects, as Karen said, all of us and those of us in D.C. especially. We have so many federal workers here in our congregation and our broader community. And so we look at those cuts in multiple ways, the way that they affect literally the most vulnerable people in America and also the way that they may affect some of us most personally. Some of us may be those most vulnerable people and some of us may make our living supporting them or working um, on behalf of art or science in our um, federal sphere. I'll just mention that we have a group of federal employees that have met once and will meet again actually tomorrow evening. And if you'd like to join that conversation, it's a space for solidarity, strategy, and support um, from federal employees for each other. You're welcome to invite friends to that. Um, we do want to keep it um, a confidential space. And so you should invite someone that you know yourself. So we know how we have been dealing with it as a country. We know some of the choices um, available to us and, and, um, and, and how those choices affect people throughout the country, both the top 1% and our most vulnerable um, adults, youth, and children. What about, though, in this society, in our community? How can we be different? than America at large? How can we take the reality of money, the reality of different kinds of access to money in our society, and be something different with it? 
just like America, I think in this community, we sometimes have a vision of ourselves as all being basically the same, all being something like middle class, right? Pretty even in terms of our access to funds. But that is not at all true. There are people in this community who are struggling to make mortgage payments or unable to make them and people in this community who are struggling to keep lights on and gas bills paid, just as there are people in this community who have been able to make incredibly financially generous contributions to the congregation. And there is everyone in between, stretching that whole way. I am proud of that diversity. To me, it speaks to the welcome that we offer, but I think we could learn to acknowledge and see it more, to notice it better. During the meditation, Karen talked about inherent worth, and that idea is so central to me to how our community handles the economic diversity within our four walls. So Felix Adler, the founder of Ethical Culture, talked a lot about inherent worth, about the idea that each one of us was worthy. And he set it up in a kind of paradigm between worth and value. Value, he said, was all the things that you did in the world. Your net worth, the money that you have, the money that you make. Value is um, what you contribute to the world. It's even, he said, your personality and whether you're enjoyable to be around. All the things that we imagine in our broader society are important. How you contribute, who you are, what you bring to the table. Adler said that may have been value, but the most important piece is worth, which you have no matter any of those other things, just by virtue of being human. You are worthy. It's a rather remarkable concept, and it came out of Adler's experience at a time very much like our own, a time of drastic income inequality. He um, lived and worked in New York City during the Industrial Revolution and the Gilded Age, and it was out of that period in American history that ethical culture was born, out of a time when he saw both people with great wealth and people with almost nothing, and wanted to create a community, a, an understanding of the world that held all of those people to be worthy in precisely the same way. So we know that one of the things that is important to us is to make clear that everyone is worthy, no matter how much money they have, no matter what their value in the world. But then the tricky thing is we actually still need money to keep this place going, right? That's why I go to all of those events and ask people to give it to us. And that money comes from members. Now, we are a congregation with no set dues, no amount that we say each person should give. We use a fair share giving guide instead, which is helpful to some folks and not all. It's a set of guidelines that allows people to see what a different percentage of their income would look like if they chose to give it to the community. The thing I like about that is that it's a tool of economic parity because it enables someone to designate a leadership gift of varying amounts because it's percentage-based. 
sometimes I hear from folks that they worry that asking for money, talking about money at all, even using that percentage model is unfair to those who have less money available to them in our community. And I hear and respect that worry. It's interesting though. Charitable giving is actually one of the things that's tied to socioeconomic status in our country at large, but not in the way that you might expect. I looked up the data at the National Council for Charitable Statistics, and here's what I found. It confirmed what I had heard as a fundraiser as well. Data from the IRS's 2011 Statistics of Income file uh, on individuals who itemize on their tax returns showed a U-shaped relationship. Actually, sorry, U-shaped, yep. I don't know what I thought this was. It says if you are hanging upside down like a bat, that's what a U looks like. A U-shaped relationship between total adjusted gross income and charitable giving as a percentage of that income. In other words, the National Council um, for Charitable Statistics went on, those at either the high end or the low end of the income distribution tend to give a higher percentage of their income as contributions than those in the middle. In broad strokes, those with incomes between 100,000 and 200,000 contribute on average 2.6 of their income. Oh, sorry, they were here. Which is lower compared to those with income either below 100,000, who give 3.6%, a whole percentage point higher, or above 200,000, 3.1%. The effect is even more severe at the extremes. So interestingly, across the country, people with lower uh, socioeconomic means, right, less money available to them, give a higher percentage of that money to charitable contributions. And then, and then as well with those with more money, which you might expect. And so to me, that speaks to the idea when I hear folks say, you know, well, we shouldn't ask for money because some people don't have as much money. To me, that actually um, uh, is a, a condescending attitude, right? We all, no matter how much money we have, may have the opportunity to give some amount to things that we care about and love. The amount will be different, right, because we have different means. But to suggest that we shouldn't ask ignores this huge piece of evidence and lived experience that those who do not have much to give still find great joy pleasure and satisfaction in being able to give what they can, and in fact do so at a higher rate than those with more to give. That idea of different levels of giving, it reminds me of a conversation that the stewardship team and board are having right now, a conversation about how to honor do donors. And this platform was requested as part of kind of bringing that conversation into the forefront, into the conversation at large in our society. The stewardship team has been talking about how we can honor people who have been able to make significant financial contributions to the building, to the capital campaign over the years. And the board actually adopted a goal to do so. Um, and I love the way the goal is written because it's so totally West, right? It says something like, I'm not going to get the phrasing perfect, but it says something like, uh, we have a 12 to 18 month goal to um, acknowledge the generosity of donors, um, using sort of names and acknowledging and honoring them, but in a way that is totally consistent and in line with our values. No small task, as you can imagine. We are not a society with names over our doors, with 
rooms named after individuals. And so figuring out how to do that in a way that honors our values here in this community is a tricky conversation, one that I suspect we'll be having for a while. Mark Ewart gives us some, um, some direction here in his book, The Generosity Path, Finding the Richness in Giving. Mark is a um, congregational consultant and a financial consultant um, as well for individuals, and he wrote this book as a kind of personal workbook for those who were seeking to increase their own generosity. So you can kind of work through each piece, thinking about your relationship with money and your relationship with giving. He writes in the book about giving within a community much like Wes, actually All Souls, where he is a member. He wrote, in my congregation, higher giving levels do not provide me greater status or benefits. It is an anti-status culture that promotes social equality for all. I do not get a better seat at events, more access to support, or have more power to influence pivotal decisions because I give money at a certain level. That's an important distinction, I think. One of my um, colleagues serves a congregation in um, Boston, a really old congregation. It's been around for a couple of hundred years, and it has pews, you know, those boxed pews, you know, the ones with the little doors. And so the ushers, like, walk you up with white gloves and open the door for you. And for many years, the pews were assigned by pledging level. So when he says, <laughs> just take a minute, right? When he says, you know, my, I don't get a better seat at events, that comes out of a real lived experience in other congregations or communities where you literally get a better seat, depending on your pledging level or depending on when your family bought the pew. Some of those pews were purchased uh, centuries ago by someone in the, um, in the family and then passed down just along with the multi-generational wealth. This community and the one that Mark belongs to is not that kind of place. <laughs> Seats are not assigned based on giving level. No matter what level of donation I give, Mark writes, my congregation will provide its benefits to me in full measure, the same as anyone else. This creates an opening for people from across the full economic spectrum, including those with limited resources and high net worth individuals. Naturally, if I volunteer at leadership levels in the organization, I will have greater influence on its workings. Footnote, run for the board. Yet this must be, <laughs> yet this must be held within the agreements and structures endowed by the community itself and not for personal gain. What Mark says here is key to how a community like ours, like his, approaches wealth. That we do so as a social justice community with equality at our heart, but also as one that lives in the reality of a capitalist society where money is what you need to buy things, right? To have what we need. So that we find ways to acknowledge and inspire giving to learn about and speak about class in our society, to lift away the shame that can come both from having too very little and too, in some progressive circles, the shame or guilt that can come from having very much. I am aware of that in my own life, my own story, a kind of fetishization, did I say that right? Is that even the word? Yeah, I, I fetishized, okay. Um, thriftiness, sorry, now you were wondering what I was going to fetishize. Thriftiness, because I'm a Yankee. And um, 
And this sort of desire not to be um, seen as, as too wealthy. Actually, it was funny. I was complimented this morning on my jewelry set. And I love this jewelry. I love sets of jewelry in general. But every time someone compliments me on this set, I am quick to say, oh, I got it at a thrift store. It was $10. Which is true. I did get it at a thrift store, and it was $10. And honestly, I'm kind of proud of that, right? Like, that was good shopping, I feel. But I also say it in part to signal, oh, it's not that nice. I don't have that nice things. I do have nice jewelry. I have jewelry handed down from grandparents and parents. I'm able to afford nice things. But I want to make sure you know I got this at a thrift store for $10. The guilt that sometimes comes, especially in progressive circles, with having wealth can be a challenge too. But just as with other kinds of privilege, guilt is never a place to stop because it's not productive. <laughs> the question is, what do you do with that privilege? How do you live with the privilege afforded you in the world? It's a question I ask myself as someone both with white skin and the privilege that that affords me, as well as socioeconomic privilege and all that that brings me in my life. There are lots of answers to that question, the way that we share resources within our community at large, the concept of reparations on a grand scale or on a personal one. The way we can spend our money not just to acquire things, but also to build something in the world, something amazing. So often I come back to the idea that one of the most important things a community like ours can do is to lift up into the light things that have been hidden. Humanism is about the reality of human existence, looking at human life unvarnished and fully. And money is a part of human life. Class is a part of it. It is yet one more thing that we as a community have an opportunity to talk about and acknowledge the ways that money can give deeply to our lives, both individually and in community, and the ways that it can separate us from each other as well. The ways that, like any tool, money can be used in positive ways and in negative ones. The way that economic diversity can be positive and challenging in a community. We have a choice to be a place where we pretend not to see economic diversity, where because we want to feel comfortable and nice, we just pretend everyone is the same here, or we can be a place that acknowledges and celebrates our economic diversity, that acknowledges the differences that we live with in our community, that some are able to buy and have more things, some are able to give monetarily in large amounts, and some in small amounts, that some receive financial support from this community through our Leaders Caring Fund. And in fact, that just having a community with that kind of economic diversity is rather remarkable these days, rather remarkable in our society. The truth is we would not be the community we are without our economic diversity. We need people of financial means to be able to support our mission. This building would not have been built without a very significant gift, the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars in 1963 from Nancy Jemison. 
nor would it be accessible by elevator and expanded to the space we have now without very significant gifts, more hundreds of thousands of dollars from donors in the mid-2000s. Donors we haven't yet found a way to name and thank in community in line with our values. <laughs> and we also wouldn't be who we are without the economic diversity that every single other person brings here. We wouldn't be who we are without the experiences of financial struggle that people have had throughout their lives and continue to have now. And the way that they bring that experience and that struggle into this community, into our lives together. We are stronger here precisely because we are able to hold and have economic diversity here. Precisely because we can be a place where we are seen fully, where we don't pretend that everyone is the same, but instead we see and acknowledge the struggles, the successes, the realities of living with diverse economic means in one community. And being able to do that goes back to the value worth paradigm, to our insistence on the worth of every person, to hold that worth deeply and fully, even as we see the realities of our different experiences instead. My hope is that this is a place where each of us is seen as fully as possible. All that we are able to give and receive. And that we know that our community is stronger because we need both of those in each of us and in all of us.